Welcome into another episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. I'm Dan Hope, joined by Colin Haas-Hill. A little bit late at night here as we're recording, so I'll apologize in advance if I say anything stupid. I might go a little bit delirious here, but I'm actually in Mobile, Alabama for the Senior Bowl. Colin is back in Columbus. We're doing this show remotely, so hopefully no technical difficulties here, but wanted to uh, do our jobs and, of course, talk a little bit about the news of this past week. The big news, of course, being... Kerry Combs officially being hired as Ohio State's defensive coordinator, which is the part we didn't know before this week. We we knew he was going to be back. It was the openest secret out there that he was going to be back. It, it, it would have been an enormous shock if Ohio State had gone in any other direction other than Kerry Combs being the new secondary coach. But... A little bit interesting to see him getting the full title of defensive coordinator. We haven't had a chance to talk to Ryan Day about this yet. We haven't had a chance to talk to Kerry Combs about this yet. So we don't know exactly how it's going to work. It sounds like the idea is it's probably going to be a similar dynamic as it was between Jeff Halfley and Greg Madison last year. But certainly we know this, that Kerry Combs and his decision to come back he, he wants to be that defensive coordinator. He wanted that step up in terms of title and responsibility. And and now, compared to his first stint at Ohio State when he was just a cornerbacks coach for Ohio State, he's going to have more on his plate, and he's really going to play a leading role in how Ohio State's defense moves forward. Yeah, it's um, it's different for, for a lot of reasons. I mean, for the last time that, that Gary Combs was, was in Columbus – People, people knew him as, as the guy who would go out and, and recruit great quarterbacks, coach great quarterbacks, and when he left, it was like, oh my God, how are they going to replace him? And now, he's coming back in a different role. It's 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 interesting. I, I do have to take a slight digression here to say, there's nothing funnier in college football than, than titles, because titles mean nothing, and the fact they have a defensive coordinator and a co-defensive coordinator will never not be funny to me. Yeah, it, it is interesting, and, and we've seen this before. We we saw this in 2017, I believe. Yep. Kevin Wilson was offensive coordinator, and Ryan Day was co-offensive coordinator. We, we actually saw it in 2018, I believe, too. I believe Greg Schiano was defensive coordinator, and Alex Grinch was co-defensive coordinator. So, so they've done this before in terms of, a perceived hierarchy or whatnot. I we know this, and in in 2017 when it was Wilson and Day, Day already had a huge influence in the offense, even though he was technically subordinate to Wilson. In 2018, they ended up promoting him and and coming right out and saying he was going to be the lead play caller that year. But he already had a big role. I don't think things are going to change here in a, in a big way in terms of the, the Combs-Madison dynamic versus the Halfley-Madison dynamic. The question is, we still don't really know exactly what the dynamic was between Halfley and Madison. And now you bring in someone whose previous experience in defensive systems isn't the same as what Ohio State did last year. And we know that Ryan Day 
wants to have a certain system. He's been adamant about that, that he believes in a certain philosophy, that which we saw this past season. But what we don't know is how much of that system was really brought in and designed by Halfley. And if if Halfley was really the guy who was responsible for coordinating a lot of that, then is Combs going to be able to do it the same way? Or should Ohio State even want him to do it the same way? Or should they want him to do it the way that's most comfortable for him? So it's there's still some questions to be answered here. I don't think anybody's really going to argue that having Terry Combs back is a great thing because... He's proven he can develop elite defensive backs. He's proven that he can recruit at an elite level. But we don't know exactly how this is all going to work still. It's a good point about the, the dynamics of the staffs. Um, it, it is funny uh, how last year uh, it, seemed, it seemed like Jeff Hafley got a ton of the praise. Greg Madison was a little bit in the background. Um, Matt Barnes was way in the background. Um, Al Washington got the good majority of uh, praise for the linebackers. It, but at the same time, I don't think that 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 either us or, or, or probably most fans really sort of understood just exactly how the dynamics were working behind the scenes. All we knew was that they were working, and it's one of those things where it's like there's no reason to really press too much of, of like what's going on here if, if things are working like that's just natural like you ask more questions about certain specifics on the back end if things are going poorly which is definitely what happened the year before um, but last year like even who called certain plays I'm not even sure that we ever really got a straight answer out of Greg Madison and Jeff Halfley for that um, so it's funny like when we're trying to analyze what it's going to be like when Kerry Combs comes in it's a little bit hard because we don't know exactly the back end of, of what exactly Jeff Halfley was doing on, on a game-to-game play-to-play basis like we have we have ideas but we can't tell you exactly what it is and, and I think that's what makes it a little interesting especially with the title where he's defensive coordinator and, and, and I do think that Largely, he and Greg Madison are essentially co-defensive coordinators. But I think that tells you how much influence that, that you can expect Kerry Combs to have. And we also don't know for sure that Greg Madison's title isn't going to change either. Just because they haven't announced that yet, he could be defensive coordinator next year. Yeah, who knows? Brian Hartline could be passing game coordinator. We, we don't know. They, they've only announced the new hires. There could still be more changes in that regard that we haven't been informed of yet yeah, title changes the, the 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 people won't change the titles maybe could but who correct knows? That's, it, that's, it, that's that's the stuff that ultimately doesn't doesn't matter and it's it's honestly it's there more for show more for resume building and more for uh monetary structure yeah it's, it's more for Kerry Combs to be able to leave the NFL to come back to the school that he left two years ago to go to the NFL and there to be a clear reason for it. And the clear reason for it is, one, we don't know what he was making with the Titans, but we can assume that he's getting a significant raise to come back to Ohio State. And he's getting a clear step up in responsibility, which is why he's not just the secondary coach. He's not even just the co-defensive coordinator. He's the defensive coordinator. He's he's never been a defensive coordinator before at the collegiate level or the NFL level, any of that. So this this is a big step up in responsibility for him. 
I think he's capable of it, but it's it's going to be interesting. And I think it's a really good point that you made, Colin, that we didn't get a clear answer on that last year. They're, per- they're purposely not giving us a clear answer because the, one of the big reasons why Herbin Meyer started this with the co-coordinators, at least in my belief, is that it makes it harder to pin the blame on one person when things go wrong. When you've got these multiple co-coordinators and all of that, it, it makes it harder for people to just pinpoint and say, well, this, this coach didn't do his job right. So they purposely don't want us to know exactly how things are going behind the scenes. But you're right, Colin, that they were never really pressed on it last year either because the defense improved so much that we all just kind of accepted that, hey, it's working. But if it doesn't work this year, then I think immediately the conclusion people are going to jump to, right or wrong, is that the dynamic between Combs and Madison is not working the same way Halfley and Madison did. Like I said, right or wrong, because the reality is this defense is losing a lot of talent from last year. And I think even if Jeff Halfley was back, I think it was likely this defense was going to have a bit of a drop-off. But now, naturally, as excited as people are about Kerry Combs right now, and rightfully so, if this defense has struggles, and I think you're going to have questions about, uh-oh, is Kerry Combs capable of doing the job that Jeff Halfley did? It's a, um, I think that I think that I talked about this probably um, a month ago. I think it was well before Kerry Combs was hired. But but it's worth it's worth reiterating and getting back into because you know, as as great a job as Jeff Halfley did, he was handed so much. Um, he got Jeff Okuda, he got a returning starter, team captain, 4.95 GPA, Jordan Fuller, he got Sean Wade, he got, he got all these guys, he got Damon Arnett in his fifth year, most experienced player in the defense, he got all kinds of talent. When Kerry Combs comes in, he's going to have Sean Wade, which is, which is huge, and, and that really can't be overstated. Yet at the same time, you know, he doesn't have that Jeff Okuda waiting in the wings. He doesn't have the Sean Wade. He doesn't have the Damon Arnett. And that's not to say that the guys that he's going to have aren't talented, but it's just to say that they're unproven. And and some of them, you know, they're not the blue-chip five-star guys that Jeff Okuda was. Like, when Jeff Okuda came onto campus and, and he was there for a year, it was like, yep, you know, this guy's going to be a first-round pick. And while I think Cam Brown and Seven Banks and Josh Proctor and, and even guys like uh, Amir Reeve, Tyreek Johnson, like, I think that they can be good. Like, you don't know that they're going to be studs, and you don't know they're going to be studs immediately in their first time starting. And I think that's the tough thing that he's going to walk into. And and it is one of those things, like you said, um, I think naturally, whether Jeff Hathley stayed or left, I think naturally the defense, and and specifically the defensive backfield, would take a step back. And I think that's that's still the case, even though he has a little bit of familiarity, which we can get into with with some of these players that he's going to have. Yeah, he, he does have familiarity, which I think is a definite plus. Sean, you wrote about this earlier in the week, that Sean Wade, Amir Reeb, Marcus Williamson, they're all seniors. They were all actually coached for a year by Kerry Combs back in his last year and his previous stint in 2017. So they, they've already been coached by him. They already know him. They're going to have that level of familiarity that, that's going to help them hit the ground running. 
Seven Banks, Tyreek Johnson, Marcus Hooker, all of them were also recruited by Combs. So the upperclassmen in that defensive backfield, for the most part, they know Combs well. They are going to be comfortable with Combs. I think one thing that's very good about bringing back Kerry Combs is that the players love it. The players are going to be very happy about this hire. Because we, we know Jeff Halfley was really popular with the players. And I think we've gathered over the past year, not that anybody said it outright, but just the way they've talked about the coaching changes, is maybe Tabor Johnson was not loved by his players. So I think bringing in somebody who has such a great track record of being beloved by his players, of being a great recruiter, of building great relationship with his guys. I think all of that is a really big plus here. And, you know, I I think some of those guys that we just named, I'm sure a lot of those guys, when they got the news from Jeff Halfley, they're thinking, man, we're going to have our fourth new defensive back coach in four years. And a lot of frustration that guys might feel of, of having to go through this year in and year out. But for it to be a guy in Kerry Combs who already has relationships with a lot of the guys on that back end, I, I think that helps that process. It's going to make for a smoother transition for those guys. And I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of him having to sell himself on them and win them over. I think he's going to come in with guys already being bought into what he's selling. Now it's just going to be a matter of how quickly does he mesh with the other defensive coaches and how well can he adjust what he did before to fit what the Buckeyes are doing now. Yeah, it's it, it, that, that part's funny because if you remember last year, there, there was so much talk about like how quickly did Jeff Affley get you guys to buy in. Well, it was immediate, and it's like when you think back to it, it's like, well, it must it was probably immediate, but also like they were just really good and really talented, so so it was probably easy to, to make it look good. Um, I do think there's going to be that buy-in um, initially for, for these guys. It's it's interesting. Like I think guys like Amir Reap and, and Marcus Williamson can can benefit from this because like Marcus Williamson's a guy who's been pretty buried on the depth chart. Has had injuries over the years. Um, I just I wasn't sure exactly what we're going to get from him as a senior, and I'm still not sure. But the fact that he has Kerry Combs back, and Kerry Combs is a guy that recruited him, that landed him, that got him to pick Ohio State, um, and and there was obviously a chemistry there. Like he has to really like that. And Mir Reap is from the uh, high school that Kerry Combs coached at for so long in Cincinnati. There's obviously a relationship built up there, and. They're, those guys are going to be seniors. I think that that matters. The old guys in the room have these relationships with him, and they trusted him, and they trusted uh, to to give their college careers to him. Like to me, that that matters a lot. And in, in a room like this, where there's going to be a lot of turnover, a lot of experience, uh, inexperience. You did mention this a couple weeks ago when we talked about Corey Dennis. So don't want to belabor the point too much, but just now that it's Official, I think it is worth revisiting. We, we had talked about comfort hires for Ryan Day and how really in this cycle of having to replace two coaches, he really went for guys that he knew really well and how in the future, 
that might not always be something that he's able to do because he doesn't have all these years of coaching experience and all these guys that he knows. So does that, you know, does that, does that concern you at all that, you know, here, even in a guy like Kerry Combs, who is clearly qualified and who clearly stands out, I don't think there's anybody that we would look at and say, man, they should have hired this guy instead of Kerry Combs. You know, there might be people out there that wanted Corey Raymond from LSU, but he wasn't leaving LSU in the first place, despite those rumors that have been out there for years. So I don't think there was a better candidate than Kerry Combs, but it also seems like, at least with these hires, it seemed like Day just kind of zeroed in on somebody that he already knew instead of spreading his wings. And that might not be a bad thing, but it's maybe something that in the future he's going to have to do whether he likes it or not. Yeah, you know, it's... I would say in this case, you know, it's just something to note. Like, I don't think that... that like, there's two things. Like, one, I think that you have to note it, and two, I think it, I think he made the right hire, and, and I think that um, I agree. he made one of the best hires that, that you could really make it in, in this spot that he was in. So it's it's two things. Like, you don't... It's not that you're criticizing him, but you're noting it. Like, this is something that happened. Like, when like when he looked for the replacement for Jeff Halfley, he found Kerry Combs, who, who he had this relationship with, and, and he put him into a, uh, a bigger spot, a spot that he hadn't been in. Um, and it's a guy who he had worked with in his most uh, recent stop before being a head coach, which, of course, was an assistant at Ohio State. Um, and that pool of coaches who he was... Uh, who is uh, an assistant coach with at Ohio State? That's pretty small, and like it's it's one of those things where you know you're he sort of ran out of the well right here because there aren't really other assistants at Ohio State. Um, it's it's it, it it makes me just think like all right, what's what's Nets offseason going to be like if he has to replace two two three coaches? Because you know if you're at Ohio State, that's always going to be the case, provided you're actually winning. Um, and because winning means that you lose good assistant coaches. Like, you, you don't want to keep your staff forever. You want to keep your staff for, for a long time, but you also want to have those guys getting head coaching jobs because that means that they're succeeding. Um, I don't think it's a big issue, yet at the same time, you know, it's just, just something to just something to think about as as they go forward. And, and you remember that Ryan Day is a 40-year-old coach, head coach with who hasn't been a head coach before, who's – Biggest experience at another college is Boston College. You and I talked about this off air after Ryan Day's press conference last week, but you know one of the big things he talked about when he was asked about the Corey Dennis hire was his desire for continuity and yep. and not just in the short term with keeping a guy who's already been on staff, but in the long term as well that. He believes Corey Dennis is someone who's going to stick around on staff for many years, and that's one of the appeals of hiring him is he doesn't want to have to continue to go through these these changes in coaching staffs every year. And I think to some degree that's an L. It's an that's inevitable when you're at Ohio State, you are going to have guys that have opportunities to go and get bigger jobs, but it does seem like he's hoping. And he's strategically hiring guys with the idea of trying to build a Clemson-like staff where guys are going to stick around for a long time 
and ideally he's not having to make changes year in and year out. He, he's really hoping that most of these guys he's hiring are guys who are going to be in it for the long haul. Yeah, the Clemson thing is, is really what – that is actually, I think, the word that I had used after um, that press conference is because – you know, like you said, he, he used continuity in a, in a couple different senses. Like, one, the continuity of Corey Dennis staying around on staff certainly helps um, in, in his mind. Um, and two, he wants continuity for, for years to come. And I do think he's correct in, in that um, you can't have a defensive coordinator uh, leave once every year or two years. Like, you want a guy who's going to be there for at least a, a couple, a few years. Um at a time, and you know, I think I I do think he made the Kerry Combs hire with that in mind at least a little bit. I don't I don't know how I don't know what they talked about in terms of how long he expects Kerry Combs to be around. Um, it's not like you can put an ultimatum and say like you have to be here this long. But the fact that he's an Ohio guy who has experience um, at Ohio State, who's been there just a couple years ago, who has experience with these players, and who loved it in Columbus coaching at Ohio State. Like, he loved it. Like, I think that he imagines that Kerry Combs is a guy that, if he's successful and if, if they get along well and if the relationship with Greg Madison and everybody else there is, is exactly what he wants, like, I think he imagines that Kerry Combs is a guy who can stick around for a little bit. And like you said, like, I do think he's he, he looked at, I, I don't know, I mean, maybe this is a thing to ask him in a press conference soon, but, like, I, I imagine, like, he's someone who looked at what Clemson had and, you know, there's part of him that, that really appreciated what they had done. If we do have a few questions from some of our listeners about Kerry Combs, and the first one comes from Ginnon Juice, and he asked, will the Buckeyes defensive backs revert back to playing through the ball slash catch as seen in his previous tenure, or will the secondary remain with the technique of turning to play the ball that Halfley installed this past season? It's a very interesting question and one that I'm not sure we know the answer to. I think I know the answer to it. But go ahead. My I, I, I think that um I think I think they'll do basically exactly what they did with um under Jeff Halfley. Like I think I think Kerry Combs is gonna come in and essentially run what Jeff Halfley did uh without making a ton of changes. Like I think that is I think that is why Ryan Day brought him in. Uh like the the not turning the head to to, to uh like that is a press cover man. Like that is exactly what the Urban Meyer defense want. That's that's what the Urban Meyer defense called for. That's not what the Ryan Day defense calls for. They do press man. They have they have some similar um, elements to the defense to, to what we saw under under Urban's defenses. And in those situations like sure that like Jeff Halfley said in one of his first press conferences, like in some situations, they are taught to do that, and Jeff Halfley taught them to do that. Yet, I, I think um, the way they want to play it with some cover one, some cover three, I think that that means that, like, <laughs> they are going to be turning their head and 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 looking for interceptions more than maybe they did in Kerry Combs' first tenure because that's what they want to do under the Ryan Day defense. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think. Certainly, first of all, I, I think Kerry Combs is capable of adjusting. I don't think that he is someone who is going to be so stuck in his ways that he's not going to be able to adjust from what he did in the past. He did adjust in the NFL. I, I can't, I'd be lying if I said I was an expert on exactly what he did with the Titans, but 
I do know that it didn't look exactly like the defenses that he coached in at Ohio State before. So he has adjusted. I think that time in the NFL is, is probably going to make him a better coach now because now he's been in a different system. He's coached at a different level. I think he's going to be able to take some tools from what he learned from that experience and much like Jeff Halfley, be able to bring that NFL experience to Columbus. And I think that's going to make him an even better coach. Now, do I think there might be some elements of what he did in the past that he's going to bring in that maybe are different from what Jeff Halfley did as a coach? Yeah, sure, probably, because every coach is a little bit different. And I don't think I don't think you're hiring Kerry Combs if you want a carbon copy of Jeff Halfley. I think at the quarterback's coach, that's what they did. I think at the quarterback's coach, they hired the guy who they thought would make the absolute least changes possible to how they do things in the quarterback room, and that's fine because they've they've been very successful in the quarterback room, but I think that is what they did there by hiring Corey Dennis. I think when you're bringing in a Kerry Combs, he's going to have some influence on things. Ryan Day did say in his press conference last week that they would diversify a little bit more this year. So I I don't think it's going to look identical to the defense last year. I'm also, I'm also not going to say that it necessarily should look identical to the defense last year because, as we just talked about, the personnel is different this year. And the things they were able to do so well with Jeff Okuda and Damon Arnett and Jordan Fuller last year might not work quite as well with the guys they're going to have this year. So they might need to make some changes. But I think it'll be a mix. I don't I don't think it's going to simply just go back to what Kerry Combs was doing three years ago. And I, and I also think the whole idea that, you know, I think some Ohio State fans see it as the cornerbacks never, ever turned their heads two years ago. I and mean, this year, the corners were turning their heads, looking back for the ball at every play. That's, neither of those are really true. I mean, it's... It, it, it did change. There was definitely more efforts this past year to 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 make plays on the ball from defensive backs, and they were playing a lot more zone. Even in times when it looked like they were playing man, they were sometimes playing zone. And I think, like Colin said, I think a lot of those elements are going to stay within the defense. But I, I, I think they were going to be adapting regardless, and I think if you're bringing in someone like Kerry Combs, you're going to allow him to, to do some things his own way. And I don't... I don't think you're bringing him in just to be a carbon copy of what you had before. Yeah, we've got another question here that sort of meshes between what you were just saying and what we were talking earlier. It's from Silver Sniper who says, do we know who had the biggest influence over the defensive scheme and adjustments in 2019 between Halfley or Madison? Any concerns that Halfley leaves weakens us in that area? And can you speak from experience of what com- what Coom... Oh my! I I'm gonna have trouble with this name. Combs brings to a defensive coordinator role behind uh, behind what we've seen of him as a position coach. <laughs> we finally figured out Jackson Smith and Jigba. And now we're struggling with Terry Combs. I know it seems so. It seems so much easier. It's Combs. Like it, just. I know. I was. Oh. I was. I was thinking it's the so same easy. thing. I thought it was. I didn't even think it was challenging, and then I said it multiple different ways in the first minute of a podcast. So it's incredible. But it is. It is late. We are a little tired, so yeah. Let's just give, our, give ourselves some excuses, real quick. Anyways, if we're going to answer the question here, in in terms of who had the biggest influence, that kind of goes back to what we said before that we don't really know exactly because 
the coaches were purposely vague about who had the most influence. And really, every time they were asked about it, they all always went back to work collaborative, we work together, yada, yada, yada. So they don't really, again, they, they didn't really want us to know. And I don't think they're really going to want us to know this year either who has the biggest influence. So the first question is hard to answer. The second question of any concerns that Halfley leave us, leaving weakens Ohio State in that area, well, I think Jeff Halfley's a really good coach. That's why he was a Broyles Award finalist. That's why he became a head coach after just one year at Ohio State. So, yeah, I think, I think it's definitely possible, as good as Kerry Combs is, and as, as much as I think just about everybody agrees that he's the best hire, there is a chance that losing a coach like Jeff Halfley is is going to weaken your staff. There's there's absolutely a chance. I think hiring someone like Kerry Combs with his background and and how proven he is over you know some unproven up and comer, you feel better about it. But yeah, I think I think there's absolutely questions there. I think it's absolutely possible that as good as Jeff Halfley did last year, that there could be a drop-off in that area. And in terms of the last part of a question, speaking to what experience Combs brings to a defensive coordinator role, well, he doesn't bring a ton of that. At the same time, neither did Jeff Halfley. Jeff Halfley had been a secondary coach in the NFL, just like Kerry Combs was. He hadn't been a coordinator in the NFL. So... It's actually pretty similar in that regard in terms of they're both coming from being NFL secondary coaches to now moving into these coordinator roles. And Kerry Combs, he, he was the assistant defensive coordinator in 2017, his last year at Ohio State. He was a special teams coordinator for most of his time at Ohio State. So he was already someone who was viewed as a leader on staff. It's going to be to a much bigger degree now. In, in his return to Ohio State. But he is already someone who had some influence on how the defense was being run in the past. So it's not it's not totally foreign to him to become a coordinator, become someone who has a lot of influence over defense. But it, it's still a definite change in why it, Greg Madison is still going to be very important in this dynamic because he does have a lot of experience as a coordinator. Yeah, I think one of the most... Um I would say arguably the biggest question mark right now um, with this hire is is about you know, both um, calling coverages, um, in-game adjustments, and, and, and just the, the nitty-gritty behind the schematics, um, the, the game plan. Like, I think that's the kind of stuff that Jeff Halfley did really, really well. Like, I think he implemented really smart game plans. He got players to understand them really well, and he got them to execute at a really high level. And if there were, if there were changes that need to be made in games, um, and, and oftentimes I will say, like, there, there oftentimes weren't this season. Um, but when there were, it seemed like he made them successfully. Um, I think that's something that he did at a really high level. I know that uh, the 11 Warriors film guru extraordinaire Kyle Jones thinks of him highly um, in that regard, and, and I think that that's deserved. And I also think that that's probably the biggest question mark for Kerry Combs when he comes into Ohio State in this role, just because the last time he was here, he wasn't really that guy. He didn't have to have that responsibility. And, and that's, that's going to be on him 
um, when when he's back in Columbus. And and that to me, like I think there's a legit question there. I think sure, if you want to have concern, like that's what I think the concern should be because you know you just haven't seen him in this in this role before. Um, now what he brings as a defensive coordinator behind what we see him as a position coach, like that that to me, like that is the main question. Because we really haven't seen him in those moments. We haven't seen him have to, to, to respond to when when his game plan breaks down. Um, because he wasn't the defensive coordinator. He's going to be the defensive coordinator in a way that we, we haven't seen um, at the collegiate level. Now, I think he's going to recruit great. I think he's going to get the players to buy in great. I think that players are going to love him. But that game plan, that, that background stuff, like I think that is the question that will remain unanswered until we see him in the fall. Like, that's that's what we're going to be talking about without answers for <laughs> for many months. Well, another, another small adjustment to it. I say small because I don't necessarily think it's a big thing, but I, I think it's probably worth a mention here, too, just in terms of what you mentioned about adjusting during game days. Is Last year, Halfley was up in, in the booth calling the game from up there. I cannot imagine Kerry Combs being confined to a booth no, for no, a game. No freaking chance. <laughs> so there's no chance of that, but it'll be interesting to see how that works because Combs is such a such a ball of energy on the sidelines, and I think that's a good thing for the most part, but it is different when you're now the guy calling the defense versus when you're just a position coach. So, I mean, we, we, we've seen it with Clemson. Brent Venables is a guy who's got a lot of energy. He's always got his get-back coach keeping him on the sideline. So it certainly can be done and, and done well, but it'll be interesting to see just, just how, that, how that dynamic is different. I don't know if they would move someone else up to the booth. I mean, I, I think Madison likes being on the sideline. I think Al Washington's another energy guy they want down there. Larry Johnson's always been down there. So could be a little different dynamic in that regard, too. I think there's one guy you didn't mention. Old Matt Barnes. Well, Matt was already up in the boom. I'm assuming he would stay there. Yes, I I agree with that. Because I think you're going to want at least one person up there. So I I would assume he would stay up there. Another comes question from GA Buckeye twenty two. I know he likes to rotate defensive backs. Do you? But do you think the twenty twenty defense will resemble the twenty seventeen defense, or one stud cornerback Sean Wade and Denzel Ward doesn't come off the field and always shadows the top weapon, or do you think Johnson Banks Brown emerges and it's a full rotation like he implemented in the other years? Yes, to the first question. I I think it will be like two thousand seventeen. I I don't think Sean Wade's coming off the field this year. Yeah, and, and the reason why he implemented rotations the other years is because he thought that those quarterbacks were all on the same level and all deserved to play and all were at a high enough level to play. But Sean Wade is clearly the best. There is no reason to take him off the field for seven banks, no matter how good seven banks says. There's no reason to take him off the field for Tyreek Johnson and Cam Brown, no matter how good they are. Sean Wade's going to play. And I think there will be. I think there is likely there will be a rotation at the other spot. That would be my guess, is that we will see two cornerbacks rotate at that other outside spot, and and how exactly that works. You know my you know my guess my guess right now would be that Seven Banks and Cam Brown will rotate at the other outside spot because they're the guys who were the top backups this past year, and then that Amir Reap will start in the slot and and. 
I think they'll still have the three corners backs on the field most of the time. So I think you'll have that that one guy who's a solid slot guy rather than shifting one of those outside guys in. But I I, I could be wrong there. That would be my guess. But yeah, I think I think Sean Wade is you know especially in a big game. I think he's going to be on the field every single play because I think he's just he's just too important to this secondary in, in 2020. Yep, I agree with that. I agree with that, and that should be the case too. Yeah, I mean, and and I, I think you know he he came back he came back to be an All American to be a Jim Thorpe Award winner, so he's going to expect to be on the field all the time and. I think Kerry Combs is going to know coming in that he's he's the best defensive back that he has. So, Ryan Day had a press conference last week. I know we want to dive into a, a couple other items. It was I think it was more than forty minutes long press conference, which means that there's a lot lot packed in there. Um, what did what did you think um, was? I know there's a lot of Corey Dennis talk. So, like other than that, what was sort of the most interesting takeaway that you had? Well, I, I, one thing I thought was interesting was that he mentioned that he has had conversations with Kevin Wilson about splitting offensive play calling duties for next year. Because I remember at this time last year when he was asked about it, he was pretty adamant about he was going to call the plays and, and, and that was a responsibility he was going to take on for his first year. He did he did say at the time that might change after his first year. And, and now it sounds like the wheels are in motion for it to be more of a split balance this year between him and Kevin Wilson. And we don't know exactly why. I think it's probably twofold. I think for one, I think Kevin Wilson probably wanted that. And I'm not going to necessarily say that he demanded it because I don't I don't want to make assumptions about something I don't know. But I would think that for him to continue to stick around as an offensive coordinator, especially when we know he interviewed for at least one head coaching job at Colorado State, that I think he probably wants to be calling at least some of the plays. So I'd imagine some of that was, you know, him coming today and 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 asking for that. And I also think some of it is is Day now that he's been through a full season as a head coach, recognizing that okay, maybe balancing all this is a little bit more difficult than I thought. And not that he had, not that he seemed to have much trouble with it last year, but he did mention in terms of talking about Corey Dennis and, and the quarterback room that he said he spent less time in the quarterback room last year than maybe he thought. And, and maybe part of this too is because you know Corey's less experienced than Mike Yersich was. Maybe he knows he needs to spend a little more time working directly with quarterbacks, and so you'd rather take a little bit of that play calling burden off. But I do think it's just I do think it's interesting when you think about how successful Ohio State's offense was this past season that he has decided that he's probably going to change things up a little bit in that regard. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting. I think. Um I think if this came in the first year, I would question it a little bit because, like, one of the main reasons, uh, like, I don't know if I'd call it one of the main reasons, but, like, one of the reasons Ryan Day became um, so highly regarded was because of his of his offensive mind. Um, and, and he put that to great use last year and obviously had a tremendous year. 
I think you want him calling plays. I know he's a head coach. I know there's a lot of responsibilities there, but I think you want him involved in that, heavily, heavily involved in that. Um, I also think that Kevin Wilson's now been around long enough that I think that they have a good enough rapport that you know there's there's reason to believe that Kevin Wilson can call those kind of plays. And Kevin Wilson has also had very successful offenses as a head coach and, and offensive coordinator. Like he's he's a guy who's been around, has seen good offenses, has coached good offenses. There's reason to trust him. So like I I think it's a fine move. I don't I think that Ryan Day is a really good uh, play caller. So I don't I'm not going to say like it's a perfect move to give up responsibility. But I think I think if you're going to Kevin Wilson as a guy who's who's going to be calling some offensive plays as well, like you could do a lot worse than that. Well, and I think another thing too is I think it's also better if 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 the head coach is going to be involved in offensive play calling. If you have two people balancing that responsibility, it's fine. If you have three people balancing that responsibility, I think it gets to be too many cooks. And I think we saw that two years ago, really, with when Ryan Day, Kevin Wilson, and Urban Meyer were all involved in the offensive play calling. And, and I think that caused some problems at times. And I think last year, it, 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 if Ryan Day said, well, well, Kevin and I are going to split the offensive play calling, well, then Mike Yersich is going to wonder, well, why, why aren't I calling plays too? But now that you, you've got, you know, at least as of now, just one offensive coordinator and, you know, you don't have anyone else on the staff that's been a longtime offensive coordinator themselves, now you can really split it between those two. And it, it probably makes sense for, for Kevin to have a little bit more responsibility now that he is that sole offensive coordinator. Other than Day, of course. Yep. Other thing he talked about that I thought was pretty interesting was the wide receiver um, thing that he mentioned. Yep. Which was, he was asked about the um, the fact that they're losing K.J. Hill, and, and that means that there's an opening at the slot, but there's Jay, there's Jalen Gill there. Who, who else is there? Uh, there's wonder about, you know, what are they going to do in, in that position? Are they going to have Jalen Gill take that up? Are they going to, I don't know, move to Mario, have Mookie Cooper get reps? What are they going to do? And, and what he basically said is, they're going to evaluate it, pick the best six, then play the best six, which reminded me a little bit of when Urban Meyer would uh, go back and, and and he would pick the best uh, offensive players and then make sure and he would rank them and, and get them the ball and essentially in that order. Um, it reminded me a little bit of that. Yeah, and I, and I think that was probably already happening last year, and I think kind of a way we saw that play out last year was that. They ranked, I think they were ranking Jeremy Ruckert and Rashad Berry over they were ranking their second slot receiver. So we were seeing K.J. Hill basically take all the snaps at slot receiver, and we were seeing more two tight end sets than we had seen in the past because I think they trusted the second, third, even fourth tight end, I think, in Jake Hausman more than they trusted that sixth receiver last year. But ideally... I think they do want this to be a six-man rotation, especially now that they don't have KJ. I think they want to have two guys rotating at every spot. And we know one of those guys is going to be Chris Olave. We know one of those guys is going to be Garrett Wilson. Most likely that's going to be Wilson at X and Olave at Z, the positions they played last year. But the rest of it's kind of wide open. And I, and I, it's kind of a sense I've gotten all along is that 
twofold here again. That one, I, I don't think they. If if we're, if we're gonna say the only true slot receivers, quote unquote, on Ohio State's roster, Jalen Gill and Mookie Cooper, I don't think they feel great about that necessarily being their their top two guys at the slot. So I think that's one reason to move guys around, and two, they have so many talented guys at those outside spots that if if you keep Jamison Williams and Jackson Smith and Jigba and Julian Fleming and G. Scott, all those guys at those outside spots, well, then at least two of them aren't going to play. So I, I think you're going to see at least one of those guys that I just named in that slot rotation somewhere. My guess, as I said, I think last week, is that Smith and Jigba is going to end up in the slot. You know, it could be Jamison Williams. It could be... Julian Fleming, heck, it could even be Chris Olave. It, however, they however they decide, it's going to work best. But you know, my guess is it's going. My guess has been that Olave, Wilson, Jameson Williams are all going to play big factors. Jameson Williams' name just, I mean, even even today when I talked to KJ Hill at the Senior Bowl and I asked him which receivers to watch out for, the first guy's name out of his mouth was Jameson Williams. So I really think Jameson Williams is going to play a big role next year. After that, I think it's a little bit more wide open. But my my guess is Julian Fleming and, and Jackson Smith and Jigba are going to be the two guys that are going to be really tough to keep off the field. And then I think Jalen Gill is really the guy that you look at that you, he really should he really should be in line to step up and be that slot receiver this year. He was a really highly tatter recruit. He's going into his third year. If it doesn't happen this year, then I don't know if it's ever going to happen. But he's a guy that you look at who really should be in line for a spot in that rotation this year. Yeah, it's um, it's a fascinating question. I mean, I think all like I think there are multiple guys who are, who are sort of intriguing slot options, which for I think Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson has got to be fun because even like Jeremy Ruckert, like I know we just. Like, I'm fascinated with more of him just standing up and playing wide receiver a little bit. And, like, it's it's crazy because they haven't really talked about that. So, like, that's just me just throwing things out. But, like, that's a thing that I could totally see them doing. Like, these are creative guys oh, totally. who, who like to who like to push boundaries a little bit. Um, and he's, he's so talented. I just think that they're underutilizing him a little bit. Um, if I were them, I'd like to get the ball to him more. And, like, that's a way that, that maybe they could. There's Jalen Gill, who I think is a little bit more running back in him than, than any other wide receiver they have on the team. Like, could Jamison Williams be a guy who's a little bit Paris Campbell-esque in the slot? Like, there's a lot of ways to go about this, and there's a lot of time to figure it out. And, you know, I think that they've earned enough trust with Brian Hartline and Ryan Day to to, to figure this one out. <laughs> I'm not going to be questioning them at this point. There's a lot of talent in that room. On your point on Ruckert, he did play 47 snaps against Clemson, which were more than any receiver other than K.J. Hill and Ben Victor. So we saw later in the year that yeah. Ruckert's, Ruckert's playing time steadily increased late in the year. Where Also, we had, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we, we had seen earlier in the year where it was kind of more four-way between Farrell, Ruckert, Berry, and Hausman, and then down the stretch it was really Farrell and Ruckert. And I do think you make a good point that I, I and and I want to clarify from what I said earlier when I said about 
the tight ends moving up in the order because of them not having six receivers. I, I didn't mean that to say that I think the tight ends are going to have a lesser role this year because I think I think both Farrell and Ruckert are going to play a lot this year. I think, uh, like you said about Ruckert, I think he's a guy that we saw his role gradually and quietly increase over the course of last season, and I think he's a guy going into his third year who needs to have a big role. So, so maybe we do see it again where there's really only one guy taking a ton of snaps at that slot position. But I think if that's the case, then that goes into your evaluation too, where if you're not, let's say, if, if you think you're going to play the two tight ends enough that you're not going to have a big rotation at the slot, then you have to factor that in to who plays there if, if you're going to say, well, if we're only going to have one guy who really plays there, well, then it better be one of your free best receivers because that guy's going to play a lot. Or if you decide you're still going to play two, well, then it, it it better not be one of your two or three best receivers because then neither guy's going to play that much. So those are all things you have to factor in in terms of how you're going to utilize that slot receiver versus how you're going to utilize those multi-tight end sets. Yeah, um... Another thing, just to move on real quick uh, in, in his press conference, because obviously covered a lot of ground, uh, he was asked specifically about areas of concern, and you know what? He brought up the areas that we were already talking about. So yeah. he's this might surprise you, but Ohio State's head coach is, is thinking um, what we're thinking, which I don't know if that should worry you or if that should uh, um, mean it's very obvious. <laughs> yeah, defensive back and running back are the areas that Colin is alluding to here. Exactly. And we talked we talked a lot about the secondary already, so I don't think we need to rehash that at this point. But certainly running back, uh, that's going to be one of those positions that we keep talking about all offseason because we saw them you know, really finally have that true feature back this past season in J.K. Dobbins. And now I don't think they're going to have that this year. And uh, Kyle Jones wrote about it this week, and we've mentioned him twice, So, which means we're, we're going to have Kyle Jones on the show soon. I would have done it this week, but with us being remote and recording it, what's almost midnight on the East Coast right now as we as we speak, it wasn't going to work out this week. But we'll have him on soon because he's always good to talk about this kind of stuff. But he wrote this week about how you know the running scheme is going to change most likely if Master Teague is the lead back. And... I, I think that's going to be a really interesting development just to see how they adapt because they're not going to have a J.K. Dobbins in 2020. It's no offense to Master Teague or anyone else, but I just don't. It's not realistic to expect any of their running backs next year to perform at the same level as J.K. Dobbins. And because the running backs who are going to play the most next year don't necessarily have the same running styles as as JK. It doesn't just affect the running back. It also affects the offensive line. It also affects the offensive scheme where, where they might have to do different things to to play into those guys' strengths than they did with Dobbins. Yeah, it's an interesting dance because you don't really want to change everything just because of the style of, of running back, yet at the same time, um, Master Teague's different. And and also, you, you don't if you're going to be playing multiple running backs, it's not like you want to have to change everything up every time a new guy comes in. So that's, that is going to be the fascinating part of this to figure out. I think that there is, um, like there is, it's reasonable to think that, you know, 
running back is a position where you don't necessarily need an elite, elite talent. You don't necessarily need that five-star. Um, I know that that's obviously the case at the NFL right now where you don't you don't necessarily need to draft that first-round running back. Um, I do think that it's more important in college than it is in the NFL in that regard. And I also think that uh, while... While maybe one of these um, lower four lower four stars or, or, or upper three stars ends up being the answer, it's hard to really just assume right now that they're the answer. Like it's hard for me to say like, well, there Marcus Crowley's definitely going to be really good, or Master Teague's definitely going to be great, or Steel Chambers is definitely the answer because you know this is just one of those positions where we just haven't seen them. We haven't seen them do uh, like I'm not even exactly sure what to expect from Marcus Crowley if, if he got in the game and got first half carries. Like, I really would have no idea, like, what level of, of talent, like, what, what to expect, what he can do with the ball in his hands just because we've seen him only late in games. Yeah, there's a big difference there. Like, I think Marcus Crowley could be really good, but we just haven't seen it at this point. Yeah, we just don't know it. Yeah, we don't. I mean, we... The only running back that we've seen play meaningful playing time on this roster is Master Teague, and even he hasn't seen a ton of playing time in big moments. So it's just a lot of unproven. It's a lot of uncertainty. It's better at running back than if we were talking about quarterback or, or some other positions on the field, but it's definitely going to be one of those question mark positions that is going to be talked about all offseason. Yeah, is there anything else in the press conference we wanted to hit on? I think the only other thing I had down on the list was was Ryan Day talking about making the team watch the national championship game and and how he's not going to let the team forget about that. And truthfully, I I, I think by the time September rolls around, we're all going to be really sick of hearing about that loss to Clemson because I think it's going to get brought up so much over the next seven months. And honestly. Us in the media will probably more more probably be more guilty of it than anybody. But uh, I think we're going to be hearing about that a lot, and I think that's also going to be true inside the walls of a Woody Hayes Athletic Center. I, I don't think Ryan Day and these coaches are gonna let the Buckeyes forget the pain they felt with that loss to Clemson. Yeah, I know there are people like a week after the game being like, "Why are you still writing about this Clemson loss? Like it's in the past. Don't make me think about it again." Well, like, buddy. Buckle up, because that is all they're going to be talking about throughout the offseason. Like, this is this is a offseason-defining loss. This is the kind of loss that they talk about every single time when they're tired. This is the kind of loss they talk about um, before or after practices, during practices. They're going to remind players of, of mistakes they made, like... Like this is this is this is this is going to be the talk up and up until September fifth. Absolutely, it's it's going to be like last year where by the end of by the end of the summer, the, the defensive players we're talking about, we're we're just ready to go out there and play, so we don't have to hear about last year's defense anymore. It's going to be like that for the whole team this year, if, in terms of that Clemson game. Exactly. Talk a little bit about the best of a 2010 series that we've had going on at 11 Warriors. Hopefully you guys have been enjoying that if you've been keeping up with it. Getting close to the home stretch there on on that. We hope we're not getting too repetitive with it, but we've been trying to to look back and kind of highlight what was truly a great decade for Ohio State sports, especially on the football field. A couple of them that we did this week, 
I wrote about the most memorable wins of the 2020s. Colin wrote about the 10 best individual seasons of the 2010s. We'll just run through both of those and, and discuss briefly. Let's, here, here, let me let me let me suggest something real quick. I want to since you wrote about the most memorable wins and I wrote about the most dominant seasons. Let's just go back and forth on like three of them, like three things that when you were writing about them, that you're like, wow, like I forgot how great that was, or like, wow, I forgot about this. Like, was there any one of those that that sort of stood out when you were um, just going through them? Yeah, I, I mean, for, first of all, I think just in going through the, the most memorable wins, it was going through, and at first I kind of had an idea of 10 in my head, and, and I'll say that the 10 that I had in my head are pretty much the 10 that made the list, but there were also some other games I looked through and go, oh man, I, I forgot about that game. That mm-hmm. was a really that was a really good game, too. So I, I, I think, you know, that was it, like... You know, I, I I think one that I would say that I I changed is I I think I originally had the national championship game from 2014 as which was played in 2015. I say 2014 because that was the season. I originally had that at, at eight or nine, and I ended up moving it up to six, and. You could make an argument for it being higher because, I mean, it was the biggest game of the decade. They, they won the national championship. I put it down at six because I, I I think in terms of actual games, I think there were more than than five games. There were probably more than ten games that were actually better games. But I also say looking back that I, I, I think because we talked so much about the Alabama game and and, and because Ohio State really did look so much better than Oregon in that game, other than turnovers, that it, kind of forgotten that Oregon was actually a touchdown favorite going into that game. That Oregon had the Heisman favorite, uh, the Heisman Trophy winner, in Marcus Mariota. That a lot of people were actually picking Oregon to win, and I, I kind of forgot that until I was looking back at it because it. It just felt like after that Alabama game, that Ohio State team just felt like such a team of destiny that I know, I know I I had picked Alabama to beat Ohio State. I, I I'm not gonna lie about that. I thought Alabama was gonna win that game, and I think after Ohio State beat Alabama, I thought this Ohio State team has just got it rolling. They're, they're gonna beat Oregon, but a lot of people didn't think that. So I think that that's one thing that I kind of forgot about. That, that made me move that game up a couple places, just just remembering that hey, they they were an underdog and then they went in and and really, if it wasn't for four turnovers, it would have been a blowout game. Yeah, and technically it was a one touchdown game in the fourth quarter, which might be hard to remember given the score was forty two to twenty. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's it, it's it's one of those where. You know, I, I think like another game that like we kind of forget about. I, I wouldn't say I forgot because it was more recent, but I think a lot of people forget about is the game that was right ahead of that, the sixty-two thirty-nine win over Michigan. But a lot of people forget that that game was close at halftime because it it they ended up winning by twenty-three points. But you know, there there was a there was a swing in that game where it looked like Michigan was really making a comeback in that game, and then Ohio State just. Swung it right back and poured it on. Started with the block but I, punt. 
Yeah, but I think a lot of times, a lot of times we forget about some of the swings that that happen in some of these games until you really go back and you look at them and then think, like even even in terms of uh, the semifinal win over Alabama, I I had actually forgotten that. Alabama did throw a hail mary at the end of a game that Tyvis Powell intercepted. It didn't it wasn't necessarily likely to happen, but they did have a chance to tie the game at the end. I had actually kind of forgotten about that because you just think of that Ezekiel Elliott eighty-five yard run just being the dagger, but the game actually wasn't quite over yet at that point. So there's just certain different different elements of these games that sometimes you forget about until you actually go back and rewrite about them and go, oh yeah, I I kind of forgot that part of the game happened. Yeah, I had some of the similar moments writing about the dominant individual seasons. Like, like, just like one thing I, I, I will mention. Like, I don't know. Maybe I should have just like started thinking about this earlier um, while the year was happening. But like, I think J.K. Dobbins was a national title game away from eclipsing anything any season Ezekiel Elliott had at Ohio State, which I think is crazy to say because Ezekiel Elliott was was so dominant. Um, but man. If you just stack what what J.K. Dobbins did up against uh, uh, as a junior up against either Ezekiel Elliott sophomore or junior seasons, like it's right there. It's right there to me. Um, I mean, he rushed for he rushed for more yards. He had twenty one touchdowns. Like I think one of the most impressive things is just how many times he topped one hundred fifty yards. He topped one hundred fifty against Indiana, Nebraska, Michigan State, Wisconsin, Penn State, Michigan. Uh, Wisconsin again and Clemson, like that's incredible. He scored and he scored a rushing touchdown in all but one game. That game was the Nebraska game. They won by forty-one. Like I think I think J.K. Dobbins arguably, arguably has as it. You could make the case that that he had a better year than Ezekiel Elliott ever did. Now, big caveat to that: Ezekiel Elliott ended that twenty fourteen season with one of the all time greatest three game stretches in Ohio State history. 20 rushes, 220 yards against Wisconsin with two touchdowns. Obviously, the Alabama game where he had 20 carries, 230 yards, two touchdowns, including that 85-yarder, and then the national championship where he had 36 carries for 246 yards and four touchdowns, which is ridiculous. Um, but, you know, J.K. Dobbins was, was on the path to having a similar end of the season where he had three-story games where he had 30 carries and at least 150 yards. And then the Clemson games a little bit, you know, it was hot and cold. Like, one, he had 174 yards, average almost 10 yards a carry and had a touchdown. Yet at the same time, he obviously had the he had the two drops and, and he did get caught that one time in that long run. So it's a little bit more of a complicated game. But, like, when I was going back and just comparing – Man, like J.K. Dobbins' season was just legendary that we just watched, and you know, since they just since they since they just won so dominantly, and and, and he would and he played beside um, Justin Fields. I'm not sure that it necessarily got the due that it that it deserved um, throughout the season. Well, and again, it gets into one of those quote unquote what ifs, and I think we have a I think we actually have a piece coming up on that later this week, and we might have to discuss that next week because. That's always fun to discuss, but what if J.K. Dobbins doesn't hurt his ankle late in the first half against Clemson? Maybe Ohio State wins that game if J.K. Dobbins is healthy in the second half. Maybe 
he ran for almost 200 yards even with that ankle injury, most of it kind of warm injury. Maybe he runs for 250, 300 yards if he's healthy in that game. And then maybe he they win, and maybe he does go have that epic national championship game performance. And then we are, we are talking about that end-of-season stretch just like Ezekiel Elliott had. So it, 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 it does. It gets into one of those what-ifs, and it... It is. It's. It's. I think. I think you put Ezekiel Elliott. You ultimately put Ezekiel Elliott's 2014 season ahead of J.K. Dobbins' 2019 season, and I agree with that because I think that three-game stretch that Ezekiel Elliott had at the end of that 2014 season, leading to the national championship, was just legendary and and so dominant. And I, I think that absolutely makes that one of the most dominant seasons in Ohio State history. But it's not quite an apples to oranges comparison here when when you you've got JK Dobbins he didn't have that national championship game to 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 show what he could do on that stage but Ezekiel Elliott did and he still ran for more yards so absolutely i mean absolutely a phenomenal season that JK Dobbins had like yeah, i i think it got overshadowed a little bit by Justin Fields i think it got overshadowed a little bit by Chase Young who you had number 1 on your list of most dominant individual seasons and i can't argue with that but yeah JK Dobbins had one of the all-time great seasons in Ohio State history this past season and that should not be overlooked yeah another to mention Man, that 2016 offense was trash except for JK uh except for JT Barrett and, and Curtis Samuel you look at some of those numbers, and it's like, whew. It's unbelievable how good that team was, despite the fact that Curtis Samuel had twice as many catches and twice as many receiving yards as anybody else on that team, and also was their uh, leader in, in rushing yards per carry. I mean, he, he and JT really were that offense, and, and Mike Weber also had a really solid um, freshman year, but, but obviously JT was the one that made that thing go, and, and Curtis Samuel was legitimately basically the only consistent playmaker that team had yeah i mean we, we saw it we saw it in a game against clemson that year in the college football yes, we did. where they failed to score a point and and for that reason although i agree with exactly what you said for that reason there's probably some listeners of our podcast going cross out jt barrett and just say except for curtis samuel because yeah. JT was not great that year. He was, he. I mean, he was certainly the most important player on the offense because of the position he played. But JT was not great that year himself. So no, I'll say, I'll say in his defense, just like his, uh, his, the the players surrounding him, other than Curtis Samuel, not great, not great that no. year. No, no, they weren't. I mean, if if you think about it in terms of you know, the NFL talent, we always talk about. If you look at that roster. So and hey, some of the names are pretty solid, but like his running back was freshman uh, or retro freshman Mike Weber. Um, Demario McCall had 270 yards as a freshman. Um, Noah Brown was was I mean he was he was solid. Um, uh, Dontre Wilson was the third leading receiver. Marcus Ball, fourth leading receiver. Uh, a young KJ Hill and, and Paris Campbell and Terry McLaurin each had between 11 and 18 receptions, but they were certainly. Not what they, not what they once uh, end, ended up as. If and you guys want to, s- and that ahead, I'll finish. just, I'll just say like, that to me is like why Curtis Samuel made the list because I, I, I even ranked him ahead of Justin Fields because I, I just ranked this on pure dominance. Like that offense was not good. 
And when it when things were going, it was really because Curtis Samuel had him going. And when you think back to like the Michigan game, which is what everyone will remember um, from that get that year of Curtis Samuel. Um, even in the first overtime, like people think about his second overtime run where he just ran every which direction and got eight yards. It was right before the spot, and then he had the um, he scored the Nets play from I don't know 15, 16. I don't, I don't remember what it was, but even in the first overtime before that, he had an eighteen yard gain, set up a set up a score in the Nets play. Like he really was that offense that year. Yeah, and I thought your placement of Justin Fields was fair. You had him at eighth on your list, and. Some people might say, well, he was a he was a Heisman Trophy finalist. Shouldn't he be higher on the list? But in terms of yeah, in terms of pure dominance, Fields had a phenomenal season. I mean, you look at the, the touchdowns to turnover ratios, just phenomenal. But there weren't a lot of games where where Justin Fields just really took over and dominated game by himself. And again, he didn't need to, so that's why we didn't see that. But if you think about Dwayne Haskins the year before, and I think even if you think back to Braxton Miller and some of his seasons at Ohio State, and, and you put Justin ahead of Braxton's best season at, at 2013, I don't disagree with that. I think there might be some people who will, just because Braxton, was, again, was one of those guys where there were times where he was that offense, where that offense truly, truly was built around what Braxton Miller was doing as both a, a passer and a runner. And Justin just didn't have to be that this past year. Now, granted, because of what we just talked about for, with the running backs, that he might have to be that in 2020. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of year we see from Fields. I, I think if Fields continues to develop and stays healthy, if we were doing this a year from now, maybe he has one of those seasons that would put him near the top of the list. But I think his season he had this past year, phenomenal season but in terms of pure dominance they were definitely Buckeyes in the past decade who were just more purely dominant yeah check out the best of the 2020s if you want to see the the Justin Fields inclusion uh, in the in the top three Got best of the 2020s man that's, that's that's crazy to think about <laughs> <laughs> I mean it it time flies so it'll be here before we know it but man thinking about thinking about it being a uh, 2030 right now nah uh, I'm not gonna do that I don't. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about that. Colin and I will no longer be be young kids come twenty thirty. So we're young we're, kids we're, still. I appreciate that. You are. <laughs> I guess that's fair. No, I know. I, I'm sure some of our. I know. I know. Even some of the comments on on some of the the best of the twenty tens pieces were, you know, I I know the eleven warrior staff probably isn't old enough to remember the 2010 season and stuff like that. I, th- I think some people thought that I didn't give the, the 2010 season enough credit. And I will say, if I'm going to be 100% honest, I don't remember a ton about the 2010 season because I started, I, I was a student at Ohio State starting in, in 2011. And I, I did watch the team in 2010 because I, I, I at that point I knew I was going to go to school at Ohio State. But I, I didn't I didn't grow up following Ohio State intensely and my major interest when I first was getting into this was more NFL draft more than following a specific team so even back then I was really more just watching players and watching college football as a whole more than I was really intensely following Ohio State at that time so 
it is probably true that I, I don't remember the 2010 season that much compared to some of the other seasons. At, at the same time, I, I, I do think it's a valid... I do think it's a valid statement to say that the fact that that season was, was vacated has taken away some of the luster of that season. And, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, when we were doing the best games, I, I know there were a couple comments that thought I should have put the Sugar Bowl in the top ten. And, and I did have it as an honorable mention, and it was a great game. I'm going to be completely honest with you, though. The moment that I remember from the 2010 Sugar Bowl was Terrell Pryor being interviewed after the game and mumbling an unintelligible answer when asked if he was going to be back the next year, which he obviously wasn't. So, I'm sorry, that's just the, that's just the truth. I didn't watch that game, so <laughs> I'll take. But I'm, the, but I, I'll but take I'm sure, I'm sure you remember. I'm sure you remember what West Virginia did that year. Oh, listen. Well, if if we want to get on the the WU podcast, I'm sure that's where everybody else who's listening right now turns off if they haven't already. <laughs> let's let's not do that. Let's 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 talk about something else that might get a few people to turn off because they just don't want to hear about it. What's wrong with Ohio State basketball? God, Colin? You want to talk about a good transition? That that we are about to <laughs> we're about to lose everybody just like this Ohio State basketball team has. Um, if you asked yeah. not, if you asked a non-basketball question, we're still going to get to that. So if if you did. Please, please stay tuned for that, or at least fast forward and listen to the questions at the end. Listen, we're we'll get through this quick because here's the real thing: like there there isn't there isn't one answer here, and that's what makes things pretty complicated, and that's what makes things without much of an answer right now. Because you go back about a month or month or so ago, and they were the number two team in the country. It seemed like they were riding high. They had wins against Cincinnati, Villanova, um, Kentucky, a North Carolina team that actually is 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 terrible, and we just didn't know it at the time. Um, and you know, it seemed like this might be a legit top 10 team. And right now they might not be a top 25 team. According to the AP, they're not a top 25 team. Um, it is shocking to see how fast things have, uh, fallen apart. And at the same time, you like think you, if you, if you really, really sit back and think and, and, and you look at the roster and, and you see how things have transpired, like it it makes sense, and at the same time, I, I do think that there will be there will be um, that they'll they'll improve enough to, to where they're going to make the tournament um, with uh, um, I don't know without much consternation at the end, and and I also don't think they're going to be near the one or two or three seed like 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 I think uh, people once imagined. Yeah, I remember. I, I think it might have been after the North Carolina game. I, I don't remember for sure, but it was after one of the big wins. We were talking about Ohio State basketball, and I think we had had a previous conversation about what this team's ceiling was, and we had said maybe, maybe Final Four is realistic. And I think I think after one of those games, I think I said, well, now we know Final Four is realistic. Well, <laughs> I, yeah, I jumped the gun. I jumped the gun on that. Well, here, um, here's what we can say: like every every team's ceiling is the Final Four. So, well, yeah. It, Technically, <laughs> we're we're gonna win on a technicality here because there is we have to win on a technicality. Every team's ceiling is final four, but yeah, I I think now we look at this team and that looks a lot less likely. Again, I mean, it's not out of the question if they really turn things <laughs> around and get hot yeah, in March. Sure, but 
it, it's it looks like a lot more of a long shot now than it did uh, a month ago. Yeah, okay. it really is a it really is a month because in literally a month, Ohio State went from being ranked number two in the country to unranked. Yeah, we started After recording this on January twenty first. I, I remember the Kentucky win was on December twenty first. So yeah, so look, pretty spiral spiraled pretty quickly. Um, well, like I, I just just to hit on a couple key points. Like, um, I think number one, like probably the thing that should could be probably most concerning after the most recent game, and and yet at the same time is probably the most fitsable thing is their defense just. Um, it didn't look good, um, and it was. I, I would say that when when they first started losing, I think that the that the thing that you had to sort of remind yourself was that this was a really good defensive team, and they would stay a really good defensive team. Yet at the same time, Penn State just sort of laid ninety on them, and it was um, they gave up too many open shots. Um, they they just they. Chris Holman has always said like details, details on defense are important. Like I just don't think they necessarily paid a cut, paid enough attention to, to certain details. They let guys get open. Um, they didn't hustle enough. They didn't. There, there were just so many. There were there was it was such a poor defensive effort that after the game, I think Chris Holman said that it's the worst defensive effort of the of the year so far. And for for somebody who who relies so heavily on defense, that's pretty astounding to say. Um, I would. I'm. I'm very interested to see them against um, them. How they defend the three coming up? Because honestly, like them, them defending inside um, has has been pretty solid. But they've just given up too many threes lately. And and part of that is I think um, like part of it is just teams have shot the ball ball well against them, and, and they haven't shot the ball well. And you know that's just that just sometimes happens in basketball. Also. Um, on defense, I just think that they've given up too many open threes, and, and that's on that's partially on Ohio State. And on the other end of the court, it's that they can't really score inside the arc. So now teams are, are, are shifting, and, and they can um, they're making it more difficult for Ohio State to get open shots from beyond the arc. And and Ohio State hasn't responded by being able to to, to, to get to the hoop, or um, and, and and I don't think Caleb Wesson is necessarily finished around the rim, maybe as well as. Um, you, you'd expect him to, and, and that all together is just put them in a really tough spot. This is two years in a row now, but we've seen this exact same thing happen to the Buckeyes. They, literally both years, they start. They were 11-1 and through 12 games, and then they were 12-6 and through 18 games. And they've had these funks around the turn of the year in January where they, they've just had this extended losing streak after a, a hot start to the year and it feels more dramatic this year because I think last year it was kind of expected where I think everybody kind of knew they were overachieving early in the year whereas this year there really were those expectations about this being you know at least a sweet 16 team and maybe better than that so I think it's a little more dramatic a little bit more shocking and, and, it, and it leads to maybe stronger reactions from people about what the heck is wrong with this team? But if you look at statistically, it, it, it's been pretty consistent with what happened last year. Of course, that, that itself, though, is really alarming. Do, do you think there's a specific reason why this time of the year this is happening? Um, I, I do think one one thing to, to keep in mind is another thing that's consistent is that the 
non-conference schedule was not as good as the coaches and, and players thought. And that was the case last year, and, and that was the case this year. When you cut, I mean, dating back to maybe a month or two after the season, Chris Holtman was saying that this was going to be the most difficult non-conference schedule that Ohio, that Ohio that he has ever played it at Ohio State, Butler, anywhere. Um, and it turned out that you know Cincinnati, fine. Uh, Villanova is a solid. Uh, that that's probably their best win. Uh, North Carolina, just not good. Um, Kentucky's been super up and down, and, and they lost to West Virginia. Um, you know, I just had to, had to say that. I mean, listen, it was, it was part of their non-conference schedule. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think that I think it's just I don't know. I I think the psychological part of this team is is fascinating. It's it's hard to figure out because you're not in their day to day, and and it's even hard for me to figure out when I cover the team and I talk to these guys because, like. It, it reminds me, even the press conferences remind me a little bit of last year where it's like they're saying the right things. They're saying that, you know, they're just going to go in and you just got to you gotta get the, uh, you got to practice right and then that'll translate to the game. And, you know, that just, that just hasn't happened. And to tell you, like, all right, what's happening? Like, why can't they translate it from the court um, or from, from the practice court to the games? I, I don't have a great answer for you. Like, other other than just that I think that we were fooled for a second year in a row about how good this team was coming out of the non-conference. Um, and I think it was even, we were even more so fooled because we expected more out of this team. And, and we sort of saw glimpses of, you know, oh, we were actually right about this team. They are actually pretty good. Oh my God, they actually might be better than what we thought. And, you know, that just wasn't the case. And, and also... Things have just gotten progressively, progressively worse. And that, to me, is like the thing that's really troubling about this season is that last year, at least when things went poorly, it was like, well, saw that one coming. This year, it's, you know, I did see that they were going to, I did think that they were going to shoot a little bit worse, but I didn't know that they were just going to totally tank, um, totally tank shooting, that they were, that their defense was going to regress, that they were going to have suspensions, that um, Dwayne Washington wasn't going to be able to, to find his shot again, that Luther Muhammad was going to go completely cold from three, that Kyle Young was going to get hurt, that um, Kale Wesson was going to struggle a little bit around the rim, that, that DJ Carden was going to have so many turnovers and, 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 and so many loose balls. Like These are the things that I think that um, <laughs> was a lot harder to predict, and it makes it makes it more troubling this year. Yeah, and I, I agree that I think there's something there's something psychological there and I can't really put my finger on it, but it does feel it, it feels like this team does not have the same confidence that it did earlier in the year. It feels like it feels like there's some level of disconnect with this team. And and again, I don't you you cover the team a lot closer than I do, so I, I don't want to make assumptions, and I, I don't want to I, I don't want to jump to conclusions that I don't know to be true. But there does seem I I don't know if maybe there's kind of a, a bit of a leadership void. I don't know if maybe you know some of it's I mean ultimately it goes back on coaching. If 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 there is a disconnect, if, if there's a lack of confidence, if you know, things are falling apart at the same time, multiple years in a row. Ultimately, that's on Holtman and his assistant coaches to figure out what's going wrong 
and, and to fix that going forward. But it does. It, it just feels like there's 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 some sort of disconnect there where they're just not playing the same way they were a month or two ago, and there's not necessarily a one specific tangible reason you can point to. Like like you said, all those different little things that you mentioned, they all have kind of added up. But there's not that like one thing you can specifically say, well, this is why things have gone wrong. But we have seen it a couple of years in a row. Uh, a big part of it was but I think, yes, I don't think the non-conference schedule is as good as we thought. And You, you play in the Big Ten, it is tough. We, we, we've seen it all over conference this year. That that home teams have dominated in the Big Ten. So so seeing some of these losses on the road in the Big Ten doesn't come as a shock. But still, to see a team go from eleven and one to to one and five, that's just not supposed to happen. At the same time, I I I, I do fit. I do think they're going to rebound to some degree. It, over the next couple of months, I do think they're going to make the NCAA tournament. I think on, I, I I know there's people who say, oh well, not if they keep playing like this. Well, they're they're probably they're probably gonna win a few more games down the stretch, and and they still, they really would have to continue losing at the rate they've lost over their last six games to not make the tournament. It's it would be remarkable. It this, this isn't like college football, where one or two bad games and your chances. You you can have a bad few weeks in college basketball and still make the tournament as long as that's you know, a team like North Carolina, they really probably aren't gonna make the tournament because they've been in a funk that's lasted for two months. But as long as Ohio State just even steadies for shit, they they, they go five hundred the rest of the way out, they're gonna be safely in the tournament. Now whether they can win in the tournament, we will see, but they're probably gonna make the tournament. They really should make the tournament. It's it's not as dire as the entire season is over, but again, it's it's when the season starts out so strong, you get these expectations of this can be a Final Four team. This can this can do all these things, and then it just crash so hard back down to earth. It can be tough to swallow. To answer new Phil fan, who is the the one who asked a basketball question this week, he asked, uh, what changed from early this season to now? Were those big non-conference wins not as good as they looked at the time? Or is the Big Ten really that tough, particularly on the road? There's a post recently that showed the most big wins this season have come uh, have co- or sorry, across the conference are home wins. Um, yeah. Um, both of those are, are, are correct. The, the big non-conference wins weren't uh, at least, at least, definitely in the North Carolina one, um, the Cincinnati one to to an extent maybe. Um, the the Kentucky and the Kentucky and Villanova ones are still good, but the North Carolina and Cincinnati ones aren't particularly ones that you're just going to pipe your chest out and, and say we beat these two teams. Um, the Big Ten on the road is is remarkable. I don't know the statistic right now. I just know teams are winning on the road in the Big Ten at just a remarkably low rate. Um, and, you know, if there's one reason to, to feel optimistic right now, and, and how about this? We're going to end this. I'm, there is going to be a way to end this on an optimistic note that I actually think is a, is a totally reasonable optimistic note, and it's that Ohio State right now, they're 2-5 and, they're, they're and five, um, in the Big Ten, yet at the same time, they're positioned right now 
potentially to go on a on a on a nice little three game winning streak if they can win these um, Big Ten home games. And considering what you just said, new Phil fan, uh, they should. <laughs> um, they're facing Minnesota at home on Thursday, which I know Minnesota beat them earlier in the year. That was a road game. Uh, then they're going to go on the road, face Northwestern, which is one of the two worst teams in the Big Ten. Then they're going to come back home and face Indiana at home. And, like, that is a very, very winnable three-game stretch that happens in the span of nine days. Um, Minnesota and Indiana aren't just going to roll over for you. Yet, at the same time, they're teams that uh, I, I think Ohio State, even in this current state, that, that Ohio State should beat. And that needs to be the expectation. The the expectation, even yes. with the recent struggles, needs to be that you go and win these next three games because you should. They're still a good enough team that they should be able to beat Minnesota and Indiana at home. They certainly should beat Northwestern no matter where the game is played. That should be the expectation. Go win these next three games. Get your season back on track. Yeah, I think it's reasonable to be disappointed if they don't win these three. I think... I think these are the three that they should win, even even though that they've had such a rough recent stretch. Well, the Minnesota and Northwestern games will both happen before our next podcast, so we'll 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 see what happens, and we'll see how much we need to talk about it then. But let's get into a few more football questions before we wrap up this week's episode. Grand Lake Selena asked. Could you provide any insight on how after-season conversations are conducted after a season? I'm kind of curious about, quote-unquote, what you need to work on to contribute for, for folks that don't get to play much and maybe transfer conversations, either to players bringing it up or the coaches. I assume there's a bit of co- communication around that as the coaches generally have an idea what players are planning on leaving. Well, first of all, Colin and I will never be allowed in to see any of these conversations, so... Some of this is pure conjecture because these are not conversations that are are privy to the public or even the media. And so most of this stuff is kept in private. Typically, these are not conversations that are, are talked about, certainly not by the coaches. Typically, players aren't going to talk about it as well. But, that, but these conversations do happen. Typically, you know, typically after a season with, with returning players, you know, the, the seniors and, and guys who are going to the draft, they typically just go on their way. But but guys that who are returning, they, they certainly are having conversations. And, and really, and especially in college football, there's really constant conversations taking place. Because even though you're not allowed to practice again until spring practices start in March, you, you're still having team workouts. You're, you're still having team activities and, and such so there's really constant conversations it's not they do have quote-unquote you know exit exit interviews or whatnot but it's not quite the same as the nfl where you have that and then guys legitimately go away from the facility for months and like they don't see the coaches again for months because they're not allowed to conduct workouts during certain parts of a calendar in college you're always seeing each other you're always in communication all year long so it's more of a continuous conversation flow but 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 certainly in in terms of the specific points that you mentioned i think you know what you need to work on to contribute those kind of conversations 
those are happening those are absolutely happening this time of year they're happening right now they're going to be happening as as spring starts up for for those kind of guys who want to get on the field and i'm and i think they are initiated both ways i think you absolutely have players going in at the end of the season and 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 some of these are probably happening even before the season's over even if the coaches would prefer that they don't you're going to have players coming in and saying hey Am I going to play next year, or should I go transfer somewhere? Uh, those conversations are definitely happening, and, and, and coaches are definitely going to. I think in most cases they're going to be honest with players and tell them, "Hey, this is this is what needs to happen for you to get on the field." And uh, a player is going to decide whether or not they like the answer that's being given. In terms of you know transfers more specifically and in in generally have an idea what players are planning on leaving, I I think the coaches probably have a pretty good idea. Like I, I don't I, I'm guessing they weren't blindsided last week when Alex Williams entered the transfer portal. I'm guessing that's probably something that they could see coming for a while. I don't know that they I don't know if they always know about these things coming up. I I think sometimes these things do happen suddenly and I think sometimes there's some push and pull where I think sometimes I think sometimes you have a guy who walks in and says they're going to transfer and the coaches convince them to stay and you know, there, there might be other times but I, I don't know this because we just don't know exactly how it works but there's probably other times where the coaches are secretly hoping a guy is going to transfer and then he doesn't so uh, if we're being honest, because we, we were also asked a couple questions about the 85 scholarship limit, there's probably a few guys on the staff that, on the roster that the staff's thinking, if that guy was going to transfer, uh, that, that, that might clear up a scholarship for us. But unless they're going to fully force him out, which as far as I know, that's not happening, then you're, you're going to have some of these conversations that are fluid. I'm sure there's probably some guys as well that have, that have probably are probably thinking about it and, and, and it's possible there might even be a couple guys who have told the coaches hey I'm probably going to leave after the spring after I graduate and, and, and those things could still change but we're not privy to all these conversations that are happening so, so we can't necessarily speak specifically for everything that's being at, said between the coaches and the players in these postseason conversations Next question comes from Northburg. It's got a nice little address to you. It says, uh, Mr. Hope, which uh, 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 that's pretty kind. Uh, Mr. Hope, based on our observation. What's, what's, he, what's he supposed to call me? Dan. Okay. <laughs> uh, listen, I've never got a Mr. Hostel yet. My dad's a teacher, so he, he's, he is Mr. Hostel. If I got a Mr. Hostel, I would, I would, I'd be flattered. Look at, look at this. Um, Mr. Hope, based on your observations of the Clemson program, uh, prior to coming to Columbus, might you compare and contrast Dabo Sweeney's so-called family approach recruiting versus the Urban Meyer legacy of the Ohio State recruiting pitch being a pathway to the NFL? Well, first of all, thank you for the respectful address. You guys can all just call me Dan. That's totally fine. You don't have to call me Mr. Hope. But don't miss Hope for me, though. I do appreciate it, and I, and I do I, I do appreciate this question in terms of having covered Clemson for two years and now having covered Ohio State for the past three seasons and, and comparing and contrasting those approaches because we, we've talked about it before and I, and I think there's so much of 
Ohio State fans, and very understandably so at this point, just having a very distasteful view of Clemson and Davo Sweeney and, you know, not uh, thinking that the way that Clemson does things is not always on the up and up. And, and I'm not necessarily here to defend Clemson, but I think in, in terms of the way that the programs are, are run, there's absolutely a huge family approach at Clemson. That, that's a big thing. I also think, though, we've seen with Ryan Day that that's become a big thing at o- Ohio State. I think I think some of that was there for Meyer, too, but I think we've really seen with Ryan Day, we, we've seen him take some of that approach. He talked about it a lot this past year about, you know, this whole family and, and tough love and all that. And, and, and some of that might even be influenced by what Dabo Sweeney has, has done at Clemson. And there... It is different, but also don't be naive. Clemson is absolutely telling players that they're going to get them to the NFL too. And that's absolutely a big part of Clemson's recruiting pitch too because they can now back it up just as well as Alabama and Ohio State can because they've been sending first-round picks to the NFL every year. So there are differences in the way things go about, the way these coaches go about things. Certainly, I think Davo Sweeney has a very different personality than Ryan Day. And I think Davo Sweeney has a personality that I think, to some degree, you are either going to love it or hate it. I don't, I don't think Davo Sweeney is for everybody. Obviously, there's some you know religion aspects and stuff there, too, that I don't want to get into on this podcast, but... There is some of that there as well that is going to appeal to certain people and it's not going to appeal to others. So I don't think Clemson is... I think probably Clemson wouldn't be for everybody, but I will say that the players who have gone there, by and large, they all... They love Dabo Sweeney. They love Clemson. They, they love the atmosphere and the culture that there is in that program. And I think, I think Dabo has done a tremendous job of, of building that up to where it, it's always a recruiting pitch, but it's not just a recruiting pitch. I, I, I think Clemson really does have that you know, built into its program, this great culture. And I think Ohio State does too. And I think all these power programs, LSU, Alabama, Etc. Have great cultures that guys want to play for, and it's and it's real, and it's not just a recruiting pitch. But I I, I do think Clemson has done a really really good job of that, and and Davo Sweeney, of course, leading the way in that in terms of building this family atmosphere that guys want to be a part of. And I, I think Ryan Day is doing a lot of the same things, and I think Urban Meyer did too. I, I think Urban Meyer. Absolutely, there was absolutely a big thing about you know being a pathway to the NFL, and I think the, the way he attacked it as a recruiter was probably different than Dabo Sweeney. And I think the way Ryan Day attacks it as a recruiter is probably different than Dabo Sweeney. But I, I think there's still a lot of similarities there, even if maybe they seem different on the surface. 
um, the you you referenced the eighty five scholarship limit. There there are two questions about that. Um, one from Dark Sun GM says, "Are we worried at all about the eighty five scholarship limit?" Um, and I know that they are over it right now. They are over it right now. It, assuming Cameron Martinez signs, which I'm, I'm just saying hypothetical. I'm not actually assuming that he will, but he is committed. If he signs, they would be at 87. So that's still only two over. And from what we've heard, it sounds like Cameron Martinez is basically the last guy they're recruiting for this class. Maybe there's some transfer options down the line that they could look at. But overall, I, I, don't, I don't think they're too worried about it. I, I, I think they're probably a little tighter than they'd like to be. And maybe that's a reason why they're not pursuing Jameer Gibbs. Maybe there's a couple transfers out there that they they would be pursuing or would have pursued if, if the numbers weren't there, they are. But at the same time, I, I also don't think... I, I genuinely don't think Ryan Day wants his program to be one that's just going crazy in the transfer portal every year. Because I was, I was thinking about this the other day with Miami because they just had a really big recruiting weekend getting Derek King from Houston and, and Quincy Roche from Temple. And Roche was a guy that Ohio, uh, some Ohio State fans were hoping the Buckeyes would pursue. I don't think they really did because of numbers. But, you know, thinking about that, and then I was thinking back on, well, they, Miami did this last year where they got a bunch of highly touted transfers, including Tate Martell, of course, and had an awful season. So I, I don't know that winning the transfer portal necessarily translates to winning football games. If you get Justin Fields, it probably does. But I, I think just because Ohio State you know, went at it last year and got two, two top guys in the transfer portal last year doesn't necessarily mean that's something they want to do every year. I think if they have a need and there's that perfect guy out there, which there was last year if Jonah, Jonah Jackson and Justin Fields, they're going to go after it. But I don't think they're overly concerned about, well, we, we have too many guys right now. We're not going to be able to go get a transfer. As long as they feel like they have quality guys on the team. And, and that actually segues into the other question that was asked. Bull1214 asked, could the transfer portal raise the scholarship number above 85? I, I, don't, think, I don't think that's anything that's, that's imminent or even being discussed at this point. I don't... I, I think the last thing I think the last thing they want to do is encourage more guys to transfer by raising the scholarship numbers as a reaction to transfers. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's really been discussed. I don't I don't think it needs to happen. I think there are enough players who are um, not playing or are reserves or deep on the bench that there's there's really no reason to, to yeah I think that. 85 is a really good number because I think you look at it right now I think like you said I think if 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 there were any more scholarships that would just mean more scholarship guys who are ultimately going to have to transfer because they're never going to play so yeah I don't I don't think there's any reason to move it move it above 85 I think 
if if you if you don't wanna if you don't wanna constantly be over eighty five every off season, then be careful about how many guys you sign in a recruiting class. And if you if you sign twenty five guys in every recruiting class, then you're probably gonna have to play the numbers game every year. Mm-hmm. Um, last question. Chipperson one. Favorite Columbus restaurant? Well, I know what Colin's probably going to say. Chipotle, <laughs> baby. No. But but yes and no. It's like, <laughs> yes, it's the one I go to most, but no, I, I, I'm I not going to go out on a limb and say that's my favorite. Not, I'm not that yeah, crazy. I think, no, I, yeah, and, I, and I, I, I think Chipperson 1 means non-national chain restaurant. I would certainly hope. Yeah, I would. I would say, I, I, I think. I think there's a lot of good options in Columbus. I, I really enjoy the variety of food options in Columbus. There's a lot of restaurants I like. There's honestly a lot of restaurants that I've never even tried, but I've heard are really good. But I, I need to get to at some point. I think my favorite is probably Cap City Diner, as I think they have a really good menu, uh, big portions, not overpriced you know like I said, there are some restaurants i haven't tried just because they're so expensive that i that, that i can't really afford to, to eat there but cap city diner is probably my favorite just overall just in terms of like you said value and quality of the food uh it's a place that i really like uh also not really a restaurant per se but just a place to go get food i love north market uh specifically i love uh it's called Taste of India that serves Indian food at North Market. If you've never been there, go there. It's the best Indian food I've ever had. North Market's awesome. I love North Market. I love those kind of uh, areas. Um, I don't remember the name of the Mexican place there, but that food was great. Uh, also, when you said Cap City Diner, it just reminded me of the one time I had it. I just completely <laughs> failed on my order. Just one of my, probably one of my top five worst uh, restaurant orders ever. Yeah, we, uh, we we went out for an 11 Warriors lunch with a few of our other colleagues to Cap City Diner, and Colin ordered a pepperoni flatbread, which if, if, if my first experience of going to Cap City Diner had been ordering the pepperoni flatbread, I probably never would have gone back because that thing looked like a microwave pizza. Yeah, that one's But that everything one's on that me. I've ever had there is fantastic. So if you go to Cap City Diner, don't order the pepperoni flatbread. Order my my personal favorite thing of their menu is the, the Thanksgiving Day sandwich, which is awesome. But everything I've had there is really good. I'll mention too. Um, I like I like walking around the Seattle Mile downtown and going to Milestone two twenty nine for like brunch. I th- I've done that like twice. I think it's pretty cool. And then like if we're talking like a nice meal, like I think Marcellus is is really good Italian food. And that is definitely on the expensive side, but you know, gotta have it sometimes. It's worth gotta it. Gotta splurge. Yeah, I've, I've actually never been to Milestone Two Twenty Nine, so I have to. I'll have to check that out. I've been to Marcella's, but they have they have very good food. Now you're gonna make me hungry at one a.m., Dan. Look at, look at you. <laughs> yes. Well, given what Colin just said, it's time for us to wrap up this week's episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. We have talked for long enough. And it's getting late, so it, it's been late. <laughs> but we kept it's, talking it's, anyway. It's been late. Hopefully, by hopefully you're not listening to this at one a.m. Hopefully, you're listening to this at a reasonable hour. If you are listening to it at one a.m., then 
I I appreciate you for choosing to to spend your time at one a.m. listening to us blabber on about Ohio State sports. But if we're helping you get for your work day or or your drive or whatever, we appreciate you listening, no matter when, no matter how you're listening. So so thanks again for tuning in, and we'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>